Before we open God's Word this afternoon, I would like to make a short announcement. I represent a ministry called Secrets Unsealed, and our intention is not only to evangelize outside, but to evangelize inside the Adventist Church. Sometimes the greatest evangelism is inside. And so we produce materials that are not primarily for outreach, although they're good for that also, but for what we call in-reach. And we have a booth here, and um, we have a marketing director and her husband with us, as well as several of the Fresno Central Church members, and they would like to meet you at our booth after lunch today, upstairs. For everyone who goes by our booth, uh, you will, if you sign up on our mailing list, you will receive a free complimentary copy of the DVD, Worship at Satan's Throne, which deals with the theological foundations of why we talk so much about not worshiping the way many churches are worshiping today. It's all centered in the message to the Church of Philadelphia. And so, it's a two-hour presentation, by the way, on DVD, and it's free to you if uh, you go by our booth and you sign up on our mailing list. Uh, also, there's other goodies up there. And so I invite you to go by and talk to Eileen. Eileen knows no, no, no loss of words. <laughs> She's a good marketer in the good sense of the word. And so we hope that you will uh, make it a point to visit our booth. Now we want to ask the Lord's blessing. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the awesome privilege of being in this place. We thank you, Father, for the rain. Oh, everything was so dry up here. But we thank you so much for the rain. And Father, I ask that you will pour out your rain upon us now in this meeting. The abundant rain of your Holy Spirit. I ask, Lord, that you will open our minds and give us understanding and open our hearts and give us a willingness to stand for you, though the heavens fall, though it means giving up our life, because we love Jesus. We thank you, Father, for being with us and for hearing our prayer, for we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I want to review, as we begin what we studied in our sermon last night. Very briefly, let's go through Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, we have a lion. What does the lion represent? Babylon. Babylon. Very well. Then we have a bear. What does the bear represent? Medo-Persia. Then we have a leopard. What does the leopard represent? Greece. Then we have a fourth beast. What does that fourth beast represent? Rome. How many stages does Rome have? Rome has four stages. The dragon beast by itself, the dragon beast with ten horns, the dragon beast with the little horn, and then the final stage of the little horn. Now let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13 is actually repeating what we find in Daniel 7 uh, using some of the same symbols, but also using some different symbols. Revelation chapter 13, and I want you to notice verse 2. It speaks about this beast that rises from the waters, from the sea. And you'll notice it says in verse 2, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now, you'll notice here that we have the same beasts of Daniel 7. We have a lion, we have a bear, we have a leopard, and we have a dragon beast. And by the way, if you go back to Revelation 12, you'll notice that the dragon beast has ten horns. So you have a lion, a bear, a leopard, a dragon beast with ten horns. And then I want you to notice at the end of verse 2, what this dragon beast with ten horns does. Chapter 13 and verse 2, the last part of the verse says, the dragon 
gave him, that is, gave this beast, his power, his throne, and great authority. So this verse is talking about the transition from pagan Rome to papal Rome. Now I want you to notice the time period that this little horn of Daniel 7, this beast of Revelation 13, governs. Revelation 13, and notice verse 5. And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. Is that the same thing the little horn did? Absolutely. Uh, let, let me not read the last part of the verse. Let's just go to verse 7 for a moment. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Is that the same thing the little horn did? Most certainly. And now notice the time period at the end of verse 5. And he was given authority to continue how long? To continue 42 months, which is the same as time, times, and half a time. See, time, one year, times, the dual, without a qualifier, means two times, and then a half time. And the biblical year has 360 days. I won't go into how you can prove that from the Bible, that the biblical year has 360 days. The biblical month has 30 days. And so you multiply three and a half times what? Three and a half years times... 360 days per year, and the total is 1,260. Now, if the biblical year has 360 days, the biblical month must have 30. Because 30 times 12, 30 days times 12 months gives what? 360. So you have 42 months here. So you multiply 42 months times what? Times 30, and what is the total? 1,260. So basically we're told that the beast, at least in its first stage of existence, ruled for a period of 1,260 years. But then notice verse 3. Something happened according to verse 3. It says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. So what happened to this beast? By the way, each head governs consecutively. They don't all govern simultaneously. So when the head is wounded, the beast is wounded. And so it says, I saw one of his heads as though he had been mortally wounded. By the way, when was the mortal wound given? It would have to be after the 1260 years, right? Because if it's after the 1260 years, then he governed longer than 1260 years. And so it says, it continues saying, and his deadly wound was what? Was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. How many stages of existence does the beast have? The beast has two stages of existence. It has the period of the 42 months, it's wounded, and then its deadly wound is what? Healed, and the whole world marvels and wonders after the beast. Now here is a very important question that I want to ask. What was this beast wounded with that took away its authority and its power and its rulership. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 10. Revelation 13 and verse 10. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. Did this system lead God's people into captivity? Yes, so what does God say? He's going to go into what? Captivity. And now notice, he who kills with the sword, must be killed with the sword. So what did the beast do? He killed with what? With the sword, and therefore he was going to be killed with the sword. Now what does the sword represent? We usually say that the sword represents the word of God. But in the Bible, symbols are flexible depending on the context in which they appear. This cannot refer to the Word of God. It can't refer to the Bible, the sword here. And you say, why not? Well, simply because the sword that kills the beast is the same sword that he used to kill. And the papacy did not use the Bible to kill. Did that register? So what does a sword represent? The Bible tells us. Go with me to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. And we'll read uh, the verse, first four verses of Romans chapter 13. Here the Apostle Paul, 
is discussing the authority of the civil power, and he says this, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, that is, to the state, to the civil power. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers, see there it is again, the civil power, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. And now notice the key verse. For he is God's minister. Let me ask you, is the magistrate, are the rulers God's instruments? Yes. It says, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid For he does not bear what? He does not bear the sword in vain. Who is it that bears the sword? The civil power. The rulers. What was it that the papacy used during the 1260 years to slay the saints of God? It used the civil power. And God is saying here that after its period of dominion, the sword that it used to persecute and to slay God's people is the sword that was going to rise against it. In other words, the sword was going to be removed from this system. Did that happen in 1798? It most certainly did. And actually from 1793 to 1797. 1798 was really the aftermath of the French Revolution. And so what took the power away from this beast from the little horn after its first stage of dominion was the fact that the sword that it used to persecute was removed from its hands and it could no longer use the power of the sword. In other words, it could no longer use the civil power, it could no longer use the power of the state to persecute God's people. Now, allow me to say something else, and this might be surprising to many of you. How many of you have ever heard that the deadly wound was healed in the year 1929? Some of you, you raise your hand, some of you have heard that it was healed in 1929. The fact is, folks, that as you study history and as you study the Bible, you discover that the deadly wound was not healed in 1929. Now, there might have been the beginning of a process, but it wasn't healed in 1929, and you say, why not? For two reasons. Reason number one. According to Revelation chapter 13, what nation was going to give the sword back to the beast so that he could persecute again? We're going to study that in a few moments. The United States. The beast that rises from where? From the earth. What nation returned the power to the papacy in 1929? Italy. Are you seeing the discrepancy? Prophecy says that the United States will return the sword so that this power can persecute again. 1929, it was Italy who returned uh, the, at least the papal state there, the Vatican, and uh, some other properties nearby to the Roman Catholic system. Secondly, the idea that the deadly wound was healed in 1929 comes from the fact that after the famous concordant was signed between the papal representative and the representative of the government of Italy, uh, an article appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle uh, where the headline, the very next day the headline said, in this way the wound that had been festering for so many years has been healed. And so Adventists picked up on that and they said, wow, you know that's the healing of the deadly wound. The problem with that is that that wound that the San Francisco Chronicle is referring to was not the deadly wound that was given in 1798. It was a a wound that was given later in 1870. When Victor Emmanuel, you know at that time Italy was divided into many papal states. It was like many, many countries in Italy. Italy was not united. But Victor Emmanuel united Italy. He got rid of all of these papal states. And the popes in protest shut themselves up in the Vatican for 59 years. And they never left the Vatican in protest of the fact that that the papal states had been taken from them. The San Francisco Chronicle article is referring 
to the wound that was given in 1870, it is not referring to the wound which was given in 1798. Prophecy clearly indicates that the deadly wound is going to be healed when the United States of America returns to the Roman Catholic papacy the ability to use the civil power to persecute. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 13 and examine that a little more closely. Revelation chapter 13, and there's one particular detail in verse 11 that I want us to dwell upon. It says there, in Revelation, whoops, I'm in Romans here, that won't help. We just read from Romans 13, Revelation chapter 13, and notice verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. I want you to notice here that it doesn't say that this beast rises from the earth. It has two horns like a lamb. The horns are broken off and then it speaks like a dragon. It speaks as a dragon while it has the horns. In other words, it is going to be a schizophrenic beast. Because it is going to profess one thing and it is actually going to do another. It's going to have these two horns, by the way, 29 times in Revelation the word lamb is used. Every single time it's a reference to Jesus Christ. Which means that this beast, these two horns, represent something Christ-like that this beast professes. But... One thing is its profession and another thing is in actual practice. While it still sustains that, it's, that, that it is in harmony with what those two horns represent, it is going to be speaking as a dragon. Now the question is, what do those two horns represent? As Adventists, we have traditionally taught that the two horns represent two principles in harmony with what Ellen White has to say in Great Controversy. I must say that I agree with Ellen White, of course. But I believe that there's something deeper here than just saying two principles because the two principles are actually something that comes from uh, something greater behind these two principles. Now you notice it says it has two horns like a lamb. Now what do horns represent in symbolic prophecy? Horns represent what? Kingdoms. Is that correct? Represents kingdoms? What do beasts represent? They represent nations. Now, how many beasts do you have here in Revelation 13? In this, in 13 verse 11. How many beasts? One beast, but it has how many horns? It has two horns. Is it just perhaps possible that what you have here is one nation that is composed of two kingdoms? Go back with me to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. And let's examine this more closely. Daniel 8 and notice verse 3. Daniel 8 verse 3. Where we have something very closely parallel to what we have in Revelation 13. Notice Revelation, I mean Daniel 8 and verse 3. Then I lifted my eyes and saw. And there standing beside the river was a ram. Do you know what a ram is? It's a male sheep, right? A ram, which had two what? Two horns. How many beasts here? One beast, but what does it have? Two horns. Interesting. And it says, of course, that, uh, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Now, what is represented by the ram? The ram represents one kingdom. It's one beast. But that one nation, that one nation was composed of two what? Two kingdoms. Notice verse 20. Chapter 8 and verse 20. It says, The ram which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of what? Of Media and Persia. So you have one nation. But that one nation is divided into two what? Into two kingdoms. One nation, two kingdoms. Now we go back to Revelation 13, verse 11, where it says that you have this, this beast, 
And it has two horns like a lamb. The lamb represents whom? Jesus Christ. And the horns represent what? Kingdoms. So we immediately ask, which two kingdoms did Jesus recognize? Are you following me or not? Did I lose you? The two horns are like horns of a lamb, right? And the lamb represents whom? Jesus. But the horns represent kingdoms. So the question is, which two kingdoms did Jesus, the lamb, recognize? Well, let's go to several texts. Let's go to John chapter 18. John chapter 18 and verse 36. John 18 and verse 36. Jesus is speaking to Pilate. And notice what he says. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, my kingdom is not from here. How many kingdoms did Jesus recognize? There's two. There's the kingdom that belongs to him. It's not from here, it's from heaven. And there's a kingdom that is on earth, which is the civil power or the kingdom of this world. Now notice John chapter 19 and verse 11. John chapter 19 and verse 11. Here Jesus once again is speaking to Pilate. Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me Unless, unless it had been given you from above. Why was Pilate ruling? Who gave him the power? God did. So who established the state? God did. Who established the church? God did. By the way, is the church spoken of as a kingdom? Jesus says, you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. The church is a kingdom. It's the kingdom of whom? The kingdom of Jesus. That's right, in this world. The church is a bona fide kingdom, but the state is also what? The state is also a bona fide kingdom. Jesus recognized two kingdoms. In other words, both established by God. Go with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 and verses 17 through 19. Matthew 22 and verses 17 through 19. And this is a very famous episode. I'm sure most of us, or if not all, have read it before. You know, the, the Jewish leaders, particularly the Herodians, come to Jesus and they want to entrap him, according to verse 15. Now notice verse 17. Tell us therefore... What do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness. Now, Jesus knew that if he answered yes, the whole Jewish nation would be against him because they hated paying taxes to Caesar. And if he said no, there would be reason to accuse him before Rome as a tax evader. So if he answered yes, he was in trouble. And if he answered no, he was in trouble. So Jesus took the indirect route. Verse 18, But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? In other words, whose face and whose name is on this coin? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. How many kingdoms did Jesus recognize? Two. In fact, when the devil offered him all of the kingdoms of the world, what did Jesus say? He said, No way. So was the church established by God as a kingdom? Yes. Was the state established as a kingdom by God? Yes. But they are ever to remain what? Separate. We give to God what is God's and we give to Caesar what is Caesar's. 
For example, let me ask you, do we have a financial obligation to Caesar? What do we call that? Taxes. Do we have a financial obligation to God? Yes, what do we call that? Tithe. See, both kingdoms have to be sustained. But they are sustained not together. They are sustained how? Separately. So what I'm saying is that this beast of Revelation 13, which is one beast that has two horns like a lamb, and the horns represent kingdoms, they must be two kingdoms that Jesus Christ recognized as legitimate kingdoms in this nation. And we already noticed in Matthew chapter 22, what are those two kingdoms that Jesus recognized? The kingdom of Caesar and the kingdom of God. By the way, do you realize that today as we sit here, we're citizens of two kingdoms? Have you ever thought about that? How many of you are citizens of the United States? Okay. How many of you are citizens of the the church, which is the earthly branch of the heavenly kingdom? So we're members of two kingdoms, right? We're members of the kingdom of God, and we're members of the kingdom of earth. We have civil duties and we have religious duties. But these two powers are ever to remain what? Are ever to remain separate. Now, you say, Pastor Bohr, is there any historical corroboration to what we've looked at from Scripture? The fact that the two horns are horns of a lamb. The lamb represents Jesus. Horns in Scripture represent kingdoms, which means that this one nation represented by, well, by one beast is going to have two kingdoms that Jesus Christ recognized. You know, as we go to the history of the United States, we discover that the founding fathers, the salient and extraordinary view that they had was that in this nation, which was being born, and I'm speaking about constitutional America, there was going to be a right for the civil government to exist as well as for the church to exist and that they were going to remain separate. Separation of church and state, in other words, in constitutional America. In fact, this was a revolutionary experiment. Do you know that the United States was the first nation in the history of the world that embraced these two principles? The principle that Ellen White calls republicanism and she calls Protestantism. The founding fathers, the constitutional fathers of the United States decided that they were going to establish a nation that was different than any other nation in the history of the world. Basically, that the church and the state were going to be separate. They were going to be able to function fully and completely, but separately. The reason why they decided this is because they had the benefit of three things that they knew very well. Number one, the constitutional fathers, when I say the constitutional fathers, I'm talking about Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington. Those are the founding of constitutional America. They knew the history of the Middle Ages. They knew what happened when church and state were joined together. They had the benefit of experience. In fact, have you ever sat down to think that uh, the founding fathers of constitutional America actually lived before the 1260 years were over? They were living during that period. They knew what happened to John Huss. They knew what happened to Jerome. They knew what happens when you join church and state. They said, in this nation, that is not going to happen. There's not going to be another John Huss. The church and the state are going to remain separate. They knew a second thing. They knew what happened in colonial America when you joined church and state. That was even, you know, that was in the 1620s. You know the history. The pilgrims came to the United States uh, from England. They wanted to establish a church where people were free to worship God according to the dictates of their conscience. And then they became oppressors of everyone that did not agree with them. If you wanted to occupy a position in the government, you had to be that brand of Christian. A Quaker couldn't be. An Anabaptist could not be. Could not occupy a place in the government. Only those who belonged to the official Christian religion could actually occupy a place in the government. The tithes were returned to the government and the government paid the preachers. 
And woe to you if you didn't return your tithes. Because that was not only a religious offense, that was a civil offense. And the government would punish you for it. Hey, that might not be a bad idea. I'm just kidding. So they knew what happened in constitutional, in, in colonial America. They knew that there was persecution. By the way, if you didn't tithe, first of all, you could be fined. For a second offense, you could be thrown into prison for not returning your tithes. Furthermore, if you didn't go to church on Sunday, which they believed to be the day of worship, they would fine you first, then they would imprison you, and at least one state in colonial America had a law that a person could be executed for not attending church on Sunday. That's in the United States of America during the colonial period. And so the founding fathers, they knew what happened in colonial America when church were joined with state. In fact, they knew very well what happened with Roger Williams. Roger Williams was probably the first that fully and completely understood what religious liberty is all about in this new country. Uh, you know, he came to the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He pastored a large church there, 1629. In 1630, he started getting into all kinds of trouble because of what he was teaching concerning separation of church and state, paying the Indians for their lands rather than killing them and confiscating the land and things like that. He not only believed in full religious liberty, but in full civil liberty as well. He got into trouble. I think it was in, in, in 1635 or 1636, the Massachusetts Bay Colony banished him. And for three weeks he crossed huge snowdrifts in the dead of winter. It was in January. And he fled. He says that he didn't have any place to sleep except in a hollow tree. He didn't have any food hardly during that period. And eventually he ended up in what today is Rhode Island. And he established the capital, which is called Providence. For a very special reason called Providence. And he established a very prosperous colony. And he sent out word, anyone who wants to come here and is willing to work hard and is willing to obey the civil laws, I could care less what your religion is. So Quakers and atheists and Jews and Native Americans and anybody who wanted to come to that colony could come and enjoy full religious and civil liberty. But the founding fathers also knew their Bibles. They were avid Bible readers. They knew their Bibles backwards and forwards. And they knew from the Bible what happened when church is joined with state. For example, they knew that Jesus had been led to the cross by a union of church and state. Have you ever thought about that? Let me just go through it a moment. You know... They bring Jesus to Pilate, the, the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate, and they say, this man is a, is a criminal. Pilate says, okay, let me examine him. He examines him, and he comes out, he says, I don't find this man guilty of anything. He hasn't killed anyone. He hasn't, uh, as far as I know, he hasn't mistreated his parents. He hasn't borne false witness against anybody. He hasn't stolen any property. So, uh, he's innocent. And they said, no, he's not. They say, by our law, this man must die. And so Pilate, he had the idea of separation of church and state much clearer than they did. He says, hey, if it's the case that, that, they, that he's violated your law, which is the law of your God, you take him and judge him by your law. But then they showed what they wanted. They said, we cannot execute the death penalty. What did they want? They wanted to execute the death penalty, but they couldn't do it as the church. They had to use the sword of the state. Is that what happened during the Middle Ages? You have heard of the Inquisition. In the Inquisition, I've been to the place uh, where John Huss was burned at the stake. You know, they took him first to the cathedral, and the Inquisition did the examining, and they pronounced him a heretic, and he was delivered to the civil power for the civil power to execute him. The Founding Fathers also knew the story of Daniel 3 and Daniel 6. By the way, those two chapters, Daniel 3 and Daniel 6, illustrate the first two clauses of the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. In Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is attempting to establish religion. He's raising an image, says, you have to worship this way. 
or else you'll get killed. But in Daniel 6, what the king is forbidding is the free exercise of religion. You can't pray for a period of 30 days to any other individual during 30 days. In other words, you have two similar stories that lead to persecution when the state gives religious decrees, but one has to do with establishing religion and the other one has to do with forbidding the free exercise of religion. In one, the king says, you have to worship this way, and in the other, the king says, you can't worship in this way. Are you following me? By the way, have you ever read the first two clauses of the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, nor prohibiting the what? The free exercise thereof. Is that a contradiction of what happened in Daniel 3 and Daniel 6? Absolutely. The government cannot establish religion and it cannot forbid you from practicing your religion according to the constitutional principles of the United States. And by the way, the First Amendment also guarantees full civil liberties. Interesting that the First Amendment would include full religious and full civil liberties. Ellen White calls it republicanism and Protestantism. And by the way, Ellen White says that in, in the end time, what's going to happen is, first of all, a Sunday law is going to be proclaimed. That is an establishment of religion. But then she also says that in a little while, there are going to be, there are going to be laws forbidding the observance of the Sabbath. In other words, the United States is going to repudiate the principles of the First Amendment. It's not going to scratch the First Amendment, which guarantees full civil and religious liberty. What it's going to do, while it still has the First Amendment, which says that Congress shall not, shall not establish religion or, or forbid the free exercise of religion, the government of the United States is going to impose a Sunday law and anti-Sabbath laws at the same time that it keeps the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. It will have two horns like a lamb, but simultaneously it will what? It will speak as a dragon. That's going to happen in these United States of America. By the way, the United States has a three-branch government. Like many other nations, we have a legislative branch, we have a, an executive branch, and we have a judicial branch. Let's look at that just for a moment. What is the purpose of the legislative branch? The legislative branch writes laws, right? What does the executive branch do? It enforces the laws. What does the judicial branch do? The judicial branch interprets the laws to say whether they are constitutional or not. What is the final court of appeal in the United States on whether a law is constitutional or not? The Supreme Court of the United States. Beyond that, there is no court of appeal except God. Now, you know how this is going to happen, this Sunday law thing and this anti-Sabbath law thing? In a time of incredible global economic and social and natural calamities and crisis. In order to sustain the country so that it doesn't disappear, so that the human race doesn't simply disappear and disintegrate, the legislative branch of the United States is going to write a Sunday law. You say, this could never happen. Listen, folks. It was being pushed for in the 1880s. We have the benefit of history. This has happened once before. So it's, it's nothing new under the sun. And by the way, it was right after the Civil War that it began, right around the time of the Civil War. And so, and so what's going to happen is the, the legislative branch of the United States is going to write a Sunday law. And of course there are going to be organizations that will sue, you know, like maybe the ACLU, that will sue the government because they're going against the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. But if the Supreme Court is stacked, 
with individuals that belong to a system whose history has always been to join church and state. And by the way, it is stacked now, and it's going to get even more stacked. The Supreme Court of the United States can say, even though everybody in the world knows that it's unconstitutional, the Supreme Court, if it says this law is constitutional, what's going to happen? It stands. That's right. And what is the executive branch going to do? The executive branch is going to enforce by law this National Sunday Law, which will eventually become also anti-Sabbath laws. You know that the United States has begun to speak as a dragon. As a result of 9-11, questions about civil liberties and religious liberties, due process, surveillance, etc., you know what's happening. We're not going to lose liberty overnight. You know, it's not that today we have liberties and tomorrow we have no liberties. The devil does it in a slow but relentless way. In a way that when we lose them, we don't even notice that we've lost them. Because it's been a slow and relentless process. Allow me to read you a statement from Ellen White. This is a very, very significant statement. By the way, when she wrote this, when she wrote the, the Great Controversy, the portions where she deals with the United States joining with Protestantism, the United States did not want to touch the papacy with a 10-foot pole. Because mainly of the pontificate of Pius IX. You know, he was the one who uh, wrote the syllabus of errors, that the pestilential error, he said, of the separation of church and state. And that it's wrong to say that the church can't use force. He was the one also who, under his leadership, uh, proclaimed the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. He was also the presiding pope who proclaimed the dogma of papal infallibility. So the United States at that time, being very Protestant, wanted, wanted nothing to do with Roman Catholicism. And yet Ellen White said that Protestants would join hands with Roman Catholics with the Roman Catholic system. People back there thought she was insane because you couldn't see it in the newspapers. You couldn't see it at that time. But Ellen White didn't go by the newspapers. She went by what God revealed in visions and dreams and in Holy Scripture. Amen. Now notice what she had to say. Great Controversy, page 441. Republicanism you understand what I mean by re what she means by republicanism? Republic it does not talking about the Republican Party. Some people have used that to say, see, the Republicans are the ones who are going to give the Sunday law. <laughs> Actually, you know, we can't ally ourselves with the Republicans or the Democrats. We are going to be shot at from the left and from the right. The right is going to shoot at us because of our views uh, of marriage being between a man and a woman. And because of our views concerning the Sabbath. The left is going to shoot at us because of our view of gay marriage. And I find it interesting that conservative Protestants will say, we need to, to return to God and we need to keep Sunday as a day of rest. And you ask them, how come? Well, because the Bible says that it's, that it's the day that we're supposed to rest. And they'll fight against marriage between a man and a woman. Between a woman and a woman and a man and a man. And you say, why are you fighting... Uh, for, for marriage between a man and a woman. Why not a man and a man and a woman and a woman? They say, oh, because in Genesis says that God made man and woman and married them. And then I ask them, and what else does Genesis say? <laughs> in Genesis, you have the two great institutions that point to the relationship between God and his people. You have the Sabbath and you have marriage. Both are used in the Bible to speak and describe the relationship between God and his people. No wonder the devil is attacking both of these institutions. Because he wants to disfigure our relationship with Jesus. By the way, when Ellen White speaks of republicanism, she's speaking about a republic. A style of government that is a republic where, where the power flows from down up. See, during the Middle Ages, who ruled? The king. If the king said, jump, 
the person would say, how high? Because all of the power flowed from the king downward. And people simply did what the king said, and that was it. In religious matters, the Pope spoke. And the Pope would say, jump! The person would say, how high do you want me to jump? Because in religious matters, what the Pope said was final law. What the church said was final law. But the genius of these two horns, these two kingdoms that Jesus recognized, civil and religious liberty, the genius was that the, the power flowed from down up. It is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, both in state and in the church. By the way, who elects your local church representatives? The conference sends the president and says, now this man's going to be the, the, the head elder, and this man is going to be the head deacon, and this woman is going to be the Dorcas leader. Is that the way it works? No, the power doesn't flow from up down. The power flows from down up, although we would like to have a little more power down there in these days because we've become more hierarchical as time has gone by and less Republican in our religious style of church government. But I won't get into that. So that's one of those boiling potatoes. Not hot potatoes, boiling potatoes. And so notice what Ellen White says. Republicanism and Protestantism. By the way, Republicanism is simply a state without a king and Protestantism is a church without a pope. Republicanism and Protestantism became the fundamental principles of the nation. And now notice this. These principles are the secret of its power and prosperity. What is the secret of the power and prosperity of the United States? Well, well, we have better weapons. We have more money. We have a better economy. We have smarter people. No. What is the secret of the power and prosperity of the United States? Republicanism and Protestantism. Separation of church and state. Full civil and religious liberty. The Revelation chapter 13 says that this is all going to come down to a crashing end. By the way, have you ever noticed that this second beast does everything to please the first beast? He makes an image to the beast. He imposes the mark of the beast. He does miracles in his presence. In other words, the United States in the future is going to do the biddings of the Roman Catholic papacy. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's a lot of sincere, loving Christians in the Roman Catholic Communion and in the Protestant churches as well. We're talking here about systems. We're not talking about the individuals within those systems. By the way, most of God's true people are outside the, the Seventh-day Adventist Church today. The great majority. And Ellen White says that there's going to be a polarization. Most of those that are inside are going to end up outside. But their places will be taken by those who come from outside in. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be one of those who remains inside. Amen. Now allow me to end with this story. This whole scene of Revelation 13 actually comes from an Old Testament story that we find in Daniel chapter 3. By the way, did Nebuchadnezzar live as a beast for a while? <laughs> yes, he did. I told you last night he was a vegan for seven years. That really cleared up his thinking. Right? Some of you weren't here last night. You know, so there are different w biblical ways of proving veganism. I'm just kidding. That's what you would call Dr. Pippin eisegesis. So Nebuchadnezzar, who for a while lived as a beast, raised up an image. And he command commanded everyone to worship that image that he had raised up. See, the image of the beast. And he said, whoever does not worship that image, if I had time, I would show you that the number 666 is hidden in the dimensions of the image, and the Sunday is found also there because the image is all of gold, and the ancients used to call gold the dew of the sun. So all of Revelation 13 is contained there behind the symbolism of Daniel chapter 3. 
And so he raised up this image. He says, whoever does not worship this image will be killed. Is this the state enforcing religious observances? Absolutely. So everybody's gathered there from every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Probably a few, few hundreds or maybe thousands. And the king has the instruments of the band play. Everybody kneels down except three members of GYC. And Nebuchadnezzar hears about it and he says, What? Three guys? And they're Hebrews. Because they were accused by, by the princes who said, These are Hebrews. They wanted to get rid of the Hebrews because of their religious principles. So Nebuchadnezzar brought them in and he says, Is this true what I hear that, that you, did not, you do not worship the image of the beast? That's not what he said, but the image that I have raised up. And the three young men said, Yes. That's true, O king, we did not bow. And we don't have probably everything that they said in Scripture. We have the foundation, the basics, but maybe they said, we don't accept your perspective of history, of prophetic history. Because you know very well that God said that there's going to be Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, Rome, Rome will be divided, and then God will establish his everlasting kingdom. We don't accept your perspective of prophetic history, neither do we accept the fact that that image represents the sun god, Marduk. Therefore, we will not bow down and worship. And then I want to share with you a very interesting detail. Because Ellen White saw in vision the face of Nebuchadnezzar. She says that Nebuchadnezzar, when he heard that, he was infuriated. And she says, with his high with his hand raised high in defiance of heaven and with his face looking more like the face of a demon than a human, said to them, if you do that, I'll throw you into the fiery furnace and what God will be able to deliver you from my hand? So these three young men were standing in the presence of a demon. And the three young men said, King, we don't even have to answer in you this matter. Our minds are made up. See, before the crisis, they'd already prepared for the crisis. Don't you think that suddenly when you're in the crisis, you say, oh, oh, what am I going to do? I'll stand. No, it won't work that way. We develop principles now. We develop character now. Because character is exhibited in a crisis like this. And so the, the king, uh, the three young men said, we're not going to bow down, we're not going to worship. They said, because the God that we serve, he's able to deliver us. But king, if he chooses not to, we still serve him. See, we don't serve God for the loaves and the fishes. They couldn't demand it. They say, God, we serve you now. What's in it for us? What are you going to do for us because we serve you? No, they said, we serve God, we love God, we obey God, simply because he's God, he's our God, and we don't need any reason to do it other than the fact that he's God. And you know the conclusion of the story. They were thrown into the fiery furnace. And soon Nebuchadnezzar looks in the furnace and he's alarmed. He says, didn't we throw three young men in that furnace? He says, well, I'm looking, I'm looking through that kiln uh, window there and there's four. And the appearance of the fourth is like the Son of God. Some people say, how did he know that the fourth one looked like the Son of God? Ellen White says that because in Daniel 2, Daniel had described the angel of the Lord. Michael the archangel, if you please. And therefore Nebuchadnezzar knew what he looked like. And so Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he calls out and he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. By the way, do you know that they never use their Babylonian names when they refer to themselves? They always use their Hebrew names. Nebuchadnezzar called them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But whenever Daniel spoke of himself, he said, I, Daniel. They refused to recognize the pagan names that have been given to them. And so the Bible says that they came out. I mean, when God delivers, he really delivers. I mean, no shabby work on the part of God. The Bible says that the only thing that had burnt were the ropes which with they were bound. Not a hair of their head was singed. In fact, it says that they didn't even smell like smoke. 
I mean, when God delivers, He really delivers. And then, of course, Nebuchadnezzar still did not understand fully what religious liberty means. Because after this episode, Nebuchadnezzar says, Oh, everybody better fear the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or we're going to cut off their head, we're going to demolish their home, and we're going to destroy all of their family. He didn't get the point. But praise the Lord, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in the kingdom. Are you looking forward to meeting Nebuchadnezzar? (laughs) The ancient Saddam Hussein in the same territory. Listen, young people and old. The time is coming very soon when this is going to happen again. I firmly believe that that's going to be in this generation. I'm not setting dates. But by what I see happening in the world, what I see happening in the church, I believe that this is the end time generation. This is going to happen again. And God is going to have a group of young people, a group of people, who are going to stand before the powers of the world when everything is against them. They have no appeal, no court of appeal on planet earth, and they will have bold and naked faith in God. And that group is described in Revelation 15, with which I will finish today. Revelation chapter 15 and verse 2. Do you know what they're called? The 144,000. Notice. Revelation chapter 15 and verse 2. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the what? The victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. By the way, God does not guarantee that you are going to be translated from among the living. There will be people who resisted the beast, his image, and his mark, and the number of his name, who will be slain. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4 makes that clear. There were some who were beheaded, according to Revelation chapter 20 verse 4, because they stood before the image and before the beast and refused to receive the mark. And that will happen during the little time of trouble, shortly before the close of probation. My question is this morning, Have we reached the point in our spiritual development where we are willing to say to Jesus, Lord Jesus, I love you. I'm willing to obey you even if it costs the most precious thing in the world, which is my life. You know, are we willing to really give it up all for Jesus? Not only things, but life itself to be faithful to Jesus. Do we have that character that is so founded upon the Word of God, that communion with Jesus through prayer that is so close? Do we have such a passion for lost souls out there that we feel this passion of sharing this message with those who are perishing in Babylon? So that when crunch time comes, not even death will be able to separate us from Jesus. Would you like me to pray this morning that the Lord will give us that kind of faith and that kind of determination and that kind of focus in our lives. If you want me to have that prayer this morning, I ask that you will please stand. And I want to have a word of prayer because trying times are ahead. In the United States, we've become accustomed to the easy life. Folks, that is soon going to come to an end. And we must make sure that our relationship with Jesus is unshakable and unbreakable, that not heaven or earth or hell will be able to distract us or keep us from our allegiance to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the more sure word of prophecy that you have given us. Thank you, Father, that you've already delineated exactly what's going to transpire so that we can prepare a character that will withstand the test that is soon to come upon this world. Father, I'm saddened as I see so many of our churches languishing, 
So many of our churches under the effects of anesthesia, sleeping, totally unaware that great events are soon going to explode in this world like an overwhelming surprise, like a tidal wave, like a tsunami, Lord. I ask, Father, that you will wake up your people. And Father, that you will give to each one of those who have stood this morning that necessary stamina and focus in their lives so that we can develop an unshakable and unbreakable relationship with Jesus through Bible study, through prayer, through witnessing, through dedicating our lives to spiritual things. Father, there might be some here who are struggling with habits in their lives. Some, perhaps, who have not even given their lives to Jesus. I ask, Father, that at this very moment, through your Spirit, you will come and you will speak to their hearts and to their minds, that you will bring comfort, that you will bring hope, that you will give them courage, that there is victory in Jesus. Father, we thank you for having been with us this morning. And we ask humbly that you will hear and answer our prayer. For we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.